Good morning, everybody, or as our guest, it's good afternoon for Stephen over in the UK today. We are getting everything started today, one, with my internet working, so that's a that's a fantastic step up from yesterday, but two, Stephen has a very important message for everybody. Uh, he's going through how to keep the cash flowing in an indie dev studio. So with that, Stephen, I will leave it to you. And as always, if you have questions, pop them in chat. And once we get through the presentation, we'll get everybody's questions answered. Take it away, Stephen. Great. Thank you very much, Jay. Um, well, good morning to you all in the US and Canada. And good afternoon to everybody else uh, who's here in the UK or Europe with me. Um, so as I said, I'm Stephen Swan. I run a company called Leapfrog Digital here in London, a consultancy providing business advice and support to development studios as well as to people looking to have games made. Um, to give you just a little bit of background relevant to this talk, I started my career as an accountant and I've worked in a variety of industries ranging from retail through service industries and even financial services, um, but eventually ended up in technology and in particular with games. Um, for about 10 years, I ran Waterfront Entertainment, which was a small sort of 12 person studio uh, based in London and making games for companies like DirecTV, Sky TV and Nickelodeon. Um, our business started off making interactive TV games like Beehive Bedlam and Word Crunch that some of you may have played in the past and gradually moved over to mobile games as that market opened up. Um, I'd like to talk today about cash flow um, and why that should always be high on your agenda of any indie dev studio, um, how best to manage the cash flow and some techniques to improve upon it. So just to start off, the first thing to notice is it's not a hobby. Um, well, perhaps for some of you, it is a hobby. Um, if you've got a, a job or a source of income and you really do this purely for fun, then that's great. Um, but don't give up the day job or it's no longer a hobby. If you ever need to earn from it, um, either now or in the future, then you're definitely not in a hobby. You've got a job to run. You'll often he hear people say things like that game makers shouldn't be focused on financials, that it makes them a sellout and will damage the quality of the game. Um, that's usually being said by somebody with a comfortable income who's not trying to earn a way of living out of it. Um, so what you have to ask yourself before you ignore cash flow is, do you have a trust fund? And I guess most of you out there don't. Even if there's one or two of you do, I'm going to assume that it's not an inexhaustible one. So it's also important to... Um, to see that rather than limiting any level of creativity um, or the quality or freedom of your game, having a good flat cash flow control is much more likely to allow you to build the game without day-to-day -day pressures, as you'll have confidence that you are within your means and can sleep at night. Um, it's also something that uh, is reassuring to know that whatever you go through managing your cash, um, it happened to someone else before and it will happen again. Uh, that's good news because it means that there is someone you know who can discuss it with you and who has experience that you can learn from. If you want that sort of advice, and I really do suggest that you do, um, make sure you look for the people who run small businesses that survive over time. It might just be your uncle who runs a corner shop, a, a friend who started from scratch with nothing and somehow stayed afloat, or someone who, who you speak to at this conference. Um, it really doesn't matter where. It certainly does not have to be just the games industry. But do remember one day it'll be you with the experience and remember that time to help other people. Finally, um, it's important to, to remember that once the studio is more than just you working as a hobby, you will gather responsibilities to others. You, you can't avoid it. Core of those is going to be your staff, but also your business partners, your suppliers, and if you have them, your investors. Um, each of these is dependent upon you to provide the funds that they need to pay their bills. Making payroll each month is probably the most important duty that you have, and one that I always find really quite uh, um, something you have to focus on. Um, even if you personally are lucky enough to go without money for a month, 
perhaps because you've got some savings or just very low costs. Um, others around you are unlikely to be that lucky and you may have family to support and provide for other responsibilities that you don't even know about. So make sure you get people paid on time. So now that we've established that you need some cash, let's work about how, how we might go about getting some. <coughs> Excuse me. So to get any business off the ground, you, you need some sort of funding. Um, it may not be much, just enough to buy a computer, or you may want to start big with an office and a full team behind you. Of course, what you'll need has to match your ambitions. Um, if your game is going to be a AAA console title, then you're going to need a lot more than if you have a nice, simple mobile title in mind. The good news is that there's a variety of ways to raise money, um, and each has a role to play. Um, other talks will no doubt talk, uh, deal specifically with funding options, so I'm just going to focus here on the cash flow implications of funding. Uh, one of the keys to managing cash flow is to make sure that your source of funds matches the needs of your studio at the stage that you're at. Um, so let's look at some of the main ones. The first is my favourite, and, uh, and I will suggest that you try and start here if you possibly can, and stay here as long as you possibly can as well, and that's to have your business bootstrapped which basically means getting yourself going with your existing resources um, and generally with the assumption that those resources are quite limited. For most indie devs, that probably means the computer you've had for years and your current mobile, even if it's got a cracked screen. Um, but being bootstrapped is a state of mind as much as a funding strategy. It's the mindset that says, don't spend unless you absolutely have to. It drives a make-do attitude that keeps you your studio lean. That, <coughs> that in turn drives you to find creative and low-cost solutions which is an approach that will pay dividends um, even when you get to have more funds to work with. The other reason to stay bootstrapped as long as you possibly can is that the further you can get without external funds, the easier it will be to raise funds when you need to um, and the better the terms are likely to be that you'll get. It might be that you do no more than create a business plan whilst bootstrapped or better still create a prototype, but it's a start that can add value to you as an investable opportunity. Of course, if you're already an industry veteran with an established reputation, then you may be able to attract investment on no more than that reputation. But it's very rare and probably it's not actually a good idea. You probably still need a business plan and a concept and preferably a prototype to reassure yourself, if nobody else, that it's a good idea that you've got. The next option is work for hire, um, possibly with a side project. Um, if you can start your business with a decent work for hire project that covers your costs, um, then you're in a very strong position because you already have a sustainable business. We'll talk about sustainability a bit more in a moment. The foundation of many a studio has been for someone to start the studio around a work for hire contract. Um, it may be someone that's given to an individual or a small team um, who've previously bootstrapped their work and have proven they can deliver, or to an individual or small team breaking out of a larger studio. In some cases, um, it might be that the residue of a team who rise Phoenix-like from the collapse of a larger studio. Whatever the route, there needs to be some level of proven experience and ability to deliver. A work-for-hire studio can be a great way um, to go, but it is a double-edged sword based around how much profit you can make on a contract. In an ideal world, if you're able to price the contract so that you have sufficient funds to generate a profit, that will, first of all, cover any gaps in work that you may have, and secondly, give you some surplus you can either take from the business or you can invest in the side projects of your own. The problem is that to maintain a steady flow of work in a work for hire situation with enough profit to do that is a challenge that is almost certain that to put you under pressure at some point. As we know, the games industry is a hit driven business. Your client comes to you with their idea, you build the game and it may be great. 
um, but if the client themselves doesn't then get the marketing right or just doesn't hit the consumer interest, then the game doesn't succeed and the client doesn't come back with more money. So you have to find clients on a constant basis to keep, a, keep the cash flowing. So it's not as easy as it looks, but it can be done. Uh, <clears throat> the next option is a publishing deal for your own project. Um, that's not investment in your company by a publisher, um, but where you agree to fund uh, an individual project. For many with a great game idea, this is seen as the best way forward, and it can be great, but does have dangers. And again, cash flow is a major one of these. Yes, if you've done, if you've done your numbers right, then uh, you, you'll have enough to deal with and cover your costs for development, and the publisher will provide those cash on a milestone to meet your costs. And that's all good, but there is a probably no real profit in the deal until and, and if the game succeeds. So as there's almost always going to be a gap between completing development and seeing revenues, um, you need to be, have pain work to do as soon as the development, uh, the first releases is, is complete. Um, next, we can talk about equity and debt funding. Um, debt funding is quite rare in games and for very good reasons, in my opinion. Um, we've already touched on the fact that games is a hit-driven business and that it's not a good match for debt funding in most cases. Essentially, debt funders want uh, low risk for a relatively low cost. That means that lenders are looking for steady income flow and assets to secure against. Um, in both cases, that's to be sure of getting the debt repaid one way or the other. Um, the reality is that most indie games don't succeed financially. Um, so this doesn't work for most lenders. The, the risk is just too high for them. There are exceptions, such as lenders against uh, research and development or video games tax relief, as we have here in the UK. I believe there's similar in Canada. I'm not so sure about the US, um, but those claims uh, or proven income from the app store where future income has a high level of certainty and you're simply waiting to be get, get paid, then a lender can lend against that to accelerate that income. In comparison, equity investment, on the other hand, expects a level of risk. It's understood that they may well lose the money invested, but if successful, will receive a, a much higher return. Um, given how few games are commercially successful, most professional investors will take a portfolio approach. Um, investing in a range of companies with the expectation that one or two of those that, that will succeed will do so well enough that they can afford the losses on those that fail. Of course, from your perspective, running that individual company, um, you want to make sure that you're one of the few that succeed. If you do have equity investors, uh, depending on the scale of that investment, they may require levels of control of your business, including shareholder agreements and possibly board representation, as well as regular reporting. Of course, the percentage of your company that you give up um, will depend upon the valuation you can place on your business and the amount of funds that you, you need. Of course, not all equity investment comes from funds or private equity investors. Um, you may, for example, get investment from another company in the industry who needs a strategic uh, benefit in taking a stake in your business. This can sometimes, though not always, um, lend to a much more understanding partner who takes a longer view of what you're trying to achieve. In all those situations, it's understanding the way in which that investor is going to perceive your cash flow and how it's going to work for you. Um, as a side point, be aware that if you are looking to see to raise equity, there are strict re regulations in that area, especially if you're raising it from individuals. So be careful how you go about getting that funding. If you look to raise, cash equ raise equity funding, um, you should get legal advice. And in some cases, you may even need to use an approved fundraiser. Um, from my experience, cross-border fundraising in particular from the, say, the US to the UK um, is particularly regulated. Um, crowdfunding is a popular one amongst game developers and it, it does work. Um, the type of crowdfunding available varies a lot. In some cases, it's uh, almost uh, equity, but in others, it's more akin to pre-sales. 
Um, if you've never tried it, though, do make sure you spend some time getting to know what's involved, how to do it successfully, um, and if it is really going to give you the funds you need. It's not something I've tried myself, I must admit, um, but as I understand it, it requires quite a high focus to be successful, which will, of course, take you away from doing the things you really want to do, which is building your game. Finally, uh, another source of income can be grants and tax benefits. Um, grants can be really useful additions to your fund, but do require a lot of work to apply. And of course, you need to meet whatever criteria is required by the, the relevant fund. Whilst making some adjustments to your business to meet the criteria is fine, be careful not to twist your business too far from your original aims, otherwise it kind of defeats the benefit. Um, what you almost certainly should do is look to make sure that you take any benefits from tax uh, benefits that are available. Um, as I mentioned before, in the UK, we've got video games tax relief and research and development tax credits, um, which give a much needed boost to cash flow. The problem with this source of funding is that typically speaking, you need to pay them the cash out first, um, do some accounts, normally your annual accounts and your tax return, and then you can claim the money back. So it can take well over a year after you've spent the money before you see it again. Um, the reason you do it, though, is because the chances are cash flow will be tight again next year as well. And of course, none of these things are mutually exclusive or few are. Um, so it's perfectly possible to mix and match. Um, and uh, there's probably other ways to raise finance that, uh, that I haven't added on to that list there as well. But th those are some of the main ones. So now we have a source of cash to work with. Let's consider how best to look after it. Um, the general rule, rule here is that forewarned is forearmed. Um, at the heart of looking after cash flow is cash flow forecasting. And there's two metaphors to come to mind here before we get going. Um, a colleague of mine used to say that managing cash is like turning, trying to turn a, an oil tanker at sea. Um, the actual turn will be completed some miles after you, begin, you make the decision to do that turn. The second is that managing cash flow by looking at what has happened up until now and not forecasting is like trying, trying to drive a car while only looking in the rearview mirror. So to answer both of these, we need to understand that looking forward is the way that we spot problems in time to do something about them. I'll say that again. Cash flow forecasting is the way that we spot problems in time to do something about them. Hopefully, you've created some form of business plan. If not, then by now, then you really should. And that's probably a starting point for you. Um, in doing so, you'll set revenue targets that are hopefully realistic, but still stretch you and your team. So they are motivational and give the kind of outcome that you would like to see. That's what you're aiming for. But whilst our business objectives might be to grow our business, our cash flow forecasting allows us to plan for problems. Uh, the same old colleague that I've spoken before used to talk about the fact that one of the objectives in the games industry is just to keep going long enough to have the hit. Cash flow forecasting is the best way of doing that. So one of the things that you might have seen mentioned or heard mentioned in relation to cash flow is understanding how long your runway is. Imagine your plane is uh, on, on a runway about to take off. You're in a 747 on a short runway. And your chances of getting off the ground before you hit the uh, tarmac is quite limited. On the same runway, or even a shorter one, the two-seater prop plane is likely to get away safely. If you translate that to business terms, we're looking to compare our spend, normally measured in months for this purposes, and comparing it to the fixed costs we have, um, to the fixed funds we have available. So if, for example, you have a million pounds of funding, um, but your monthly spend is £200,000, you're five months before you crash. A business that raises only £200,000 but has monthly costs of only 20000 has twice as long to get there. 
another way to look at runway is how often you can get things wrong. Um, too many businesses assume that everything will work right first time. And I'm here to tell you that unfortunately it won't. Um, so build that into your thinking and make sure you have time in your runway to make a few mistakes and still get off the ground. And what does it take to get off the ground and clear the runway? Well, that's the good news. It's a dollar, that's all, or a pound, wherever you are. Um, but it's the fact that the dollar concerned is the one you have left after you met all your other costs. And that's what makes it important. If you can generate cash in an average month, your cost base, uh, greater than your cost base, then you have a sustainable business. You still have cash flow challenges until that surplus grows and gives you a buffer. The plane is, after all, safer once it gets to a level of altitude. Um, so what we're looking for in a cash flow forecast is it shows us the, uh, clearing the runway, getting off the ground, giving us some altitude, and then keeping us there. So let's look at a cash flow example. Um, here's a very simple example. It's hard to show too much detail on the screen, so I've prepared a demo version, which I'm happy to share, and you can use that as a base for your own. Um, just email me at stephen at leapfrog.digital um, with the title cash flow model, and I'll send you a copy. Um, feel free to use it, change it, share it, etc. Just don't ask me to fix it when you, uh, when you break it. Um, it doesn't use complicated formulas, and you can add rows of income and costs as you meet your needs. It's just a thing to, to show you some of the, thing, the way in which you might look at it. One of the first things to note about any cash flow is that it's not the same as the cash flow you may have built in your business plan. Um, that works alongside the forecasted P&L and balance sheet, and it takes a long-term view of the business. Um, that's a strategic overview. What we're dealing with here is a tactical tool to work with in the short to medium term. Uh, the two obviously share some common basis, but um, are focused quite differently. Um, in terms of what to use, most accounting software will let you build um, a cash flow forecast, or you can find them online. The problem with these I always find is that they often require you to work um, within their system and their structure, and they normally work to the same accounting period that your accounts are done in. Um, perhaps you can find one that works better for you, um, but I found that the one I prefer is creating my own spreadsheet. Um, at the end of the day, cash flow is a really simple exercise. You add the cash that comes in, as you can see here, shown as the income. You take off the cost that's going out, you know, your, your various different costs. Um, you get a movement for the period and you add it to the cash that you already have and you have the, the balance that you carry forward to the next period. Um, the detail you'll put in there will get bigger and more complex, but fundamentally, that's it. Um, in this case, you can see that the business has two sources of income, which is increasing, which is good news. Um, most of its costs are consistent on a weekly basis, but the payroll happens to fall here in week two. Um, Payroll and rent are the sort of things that tend to come in lumpy and they're the where you normally find that you have the lowest point in your cash flow. Um, in this week, therefore, there's a major cash negative um, outflow, uh, which pushes the cash itself into a, into a negative position. So this tells the business it has an issue to resolve um, it's, if it's going to meet payroll and pay its supplies in that week. Hopefully for this relatively small sum um, for only one week, and I say small, small is always relative to the turnover and the expenditure of the business. So in this case, where it's turning over some £25,000 or dollars a, a week, uh, a $2,000 shortfall at the end is not too serious. Um, hopefully, as a small amount, it should be easily solved, but the sooner it's addressed, the better. The core areas of complexity that, come for, that can come in, ca in cash flows tend to come from the timing of payments. Um, take, for example, you've invoiced a customer £10,000 plus sales taxes, and, and they're due to pay you in a particular week. What you'll find is that with experience with that customer, you'll find out that they perhaps pay two weeks later. 
because that happens to fall in line with when he runs his payments. Uh, most businesses don't write checks every day. They do it once a week or once a month even. You should, of course, put it in your cash flow for at least two weeks after it's due, due date, but um, because that's when it's realistic. You may even wish to add a week on for caution. If you have lots of customers, you can probably work out an averaging d delay and use that. But do keep an eye out in those situations for any large invoices that might throw this off. When the payment comes in, at least in the UK, it will have sales tax added, 20% in VAT. I presume that's similar in, in the US and Canada and elsewhere. Um, the sales tax will have to be accounted for to the tax authorities at the appropriate time. Um, the rules for this will, of course, vary from territory to territory. Um, in the UK, it's generally reported on a quarterly basis based on amounts invoiced, uh, not the cash received. That means you might have to uh, have, you might have access to these funds in the short run, but will need to pay the lump sum taxes at the same point at some point in the future. So it's usually best to set these sums aside for that purpose. Um, it may even make sense to put them in a separate bank account if you've got the self-control to do that and not allow yourself to use them for, for, the, for this week's payroll. By building your own spreadsheet, you'll be closer to the numbers um, than if you plug them into um, to, to a, a ready-made model and uh, you'll see how they've been arrived at. So you have a better understanding of what can be done with them. So let's have a, have a look at some of the key aspects of, of a cash flow. Um, in the vast majority of cases, I would create a cash flow on a weekly basis for a minimum of 12 weeks, um, although for some, probably better that it spans six months. That would be, that's that's a, a longer period to look over. Um, you need weekly because monthly working monthly will potentially hide problems within the month. We actually saw an example of that in the, the previous slide uh, where we saw that in one particular week within the month, it dipped below. And you might have missed that if you only did it on a monthly basis. In some cases, if it's really tight, you may even go to daily, but that's not normally practical or beneficial. And monthly forecasting at the other side is more acceptable when you've got a profitable and sustainable business and it's a well-established buffer of three to six months costs held in cash. Um, the next thing to remember is to be realistic um, rather than just hope for the best. Um, a good example is this is payment terms. Uh, you may put 30-day payment terms into your contract. Your client may agree and genuinely expect to pay on those terms. But then the practice may be that they pay a few days later or even longer. Again, that's often because it's controlled by the accounts department rather than the person you've been dealing with. A good guide, guide here is to remember that larger businesses tend to pay slower than smaller ones. Um, it's not so much that they can't or won't pay, won't pay on time, but that their internal systems slow down the processes and that just simply can't be circumvented. It's also important to avoid a false sense of accuracy. I've seen people worrying excessively about the mobile phone bill being right while sales are around some guests and several magnitudes higher than, than the mobile phone bill. Um, sure, take a few minutes to, uh, to get the detail right where you can, but it's more important to keep an eye on the big assumptions you have to make and make sure that they are, are realistic. Another aspect to think about is it's important to understand how long your commitments last. Um, many companies have processes to prevent an individual signing off large spend without proper consideration. Uh, perhaps it requires board approval. What often gets missed is longer term contracts that may have a relatively small monthly cost, but that you're locked into for maybe two, three or even five years. Um, a particular example of this is staff costs, which depending on the rules where you're based, um, reducing headcount can take some months to achieve. Uh, involving a lot of management time and may have exit costs such as redundancy. So before you recruit, uh, recruit make sure you really, really need the person because it's much harder to let them go than you think. 
Of course, creating a cash flow is not a one-off exercise. It's absolutely essential to keep it up to date. Um, how often you refresh it will depend on the circumstances. In the ordinary course of business, doing this exercise once a month is probably sufficient, um, but it may be that if cash is tight, you do it weekly. Or if there's a sudden or, um, or unexpected change in circumstances or before you make a major purchasing decision, um, you should refresh it to see how that decision will impact the cash flow. The primary purpose of keeping update is, of course, to make it fresh and accurate. Um, but if the prior cash flow that you've been doing wasn't accurate, um, it's also a chance to learn why and adjust your assumptions going forward. And increasingly, if you do that and keep looking and learning from it, it will become increasingly accurate as you go on. And that knowledge may be of great importance to you uh, when you have to deal with a cash crisis. I said that keeping the cash flow simple is a good way to go, and you certainly should aim uh, to do that wherever you can. Um, one thing that does pay dividends, though, is to show your assumptions and allow sensitivity analysis. Um, just as you would want your coders in your team to make sure there was no magic numbers in your code, you should avoid them in a cash flow as, as well. Um, you should assume that sales of your new mobile game will, sorry, if you assume that sales of your mobile game will grow by, say, 10% per month, then show that number in an assumption section and drive your sales income from it. Um, then if someone comes along and says that 10% is too high and wants you to try and see what would happen with 8%, um, you simply plug in that new number and you can see the impact um, almost immediately. It, it also allows you to use trial and error to see how long you can go before it causes a problem with your cash flow. So you might be able to reduce that down to three, four, five, whatever percent to see that, yes, we can, we can get half the level of sales we're expecting and we still don't run out of cash, so therefore we're strong. Okay, so... Now some tips to how, to how you can improve on, on your cash flow. Um, you've, you've got the cash flow, you've got the funds, um, but let's assume that there's not as strong as you would like or worse still, it's showing that you do have a cash crisis coming up. What do you do about it? Um, remember that we said that cash flow takes time to turn around. So the sooner you start improving things, the better. Uh, the first time, uh, tip is oddly is to pay on time when you can. <laughs> I know you're all saying, hang on a second, I thought this was about improving cash flow. So why are we paying earlier? The answer is, it is about that, but if your supplier, if you pay your suppliers on time when you can, you gain the suppliers' respect and trust. If later on you need to ask them to wait a while, they are much more likely to play ball because they trust you, know what you're doing, and will pay them when you can because your cash flow forecast makes you confident that you can. Don't forget your suppliers, if they know what they're doing, are also having to run a cash flow, and by helping them, you become one of their good customers. On the other side of the coin, um, remember to keep your own customers on a fairly short leash. Um, do pay them on time. Um, if, if they need, sorry, do they pay you on time? And, and if they do need to pay you late, do they communicate and pay when they say they will? All these things help you understand the level you can trust your own customers. It's a two two way street, and a little trust goes a long way. Occasionally, key customers will pay you early um, to help you get over a problem if there's re a really trusting relationship. That's not terribly common, but I've seen it happen, um, and it always comes down to the level of trust between the parties, especially with larger customers who have big accounts departments. Um, it's good to get to know their processes and systems. Um, what paper from you do they need for, for you to approve the invoice? Um, this can be having having set up as, a, as an approved supplier, which is a, usually a one-off task, but having been through it a few times, it does tend to be time consuming, um, or they may use a purchase ordering systems or need copies of the invoices sent to particular places and an internal approval of the invoice, in which case find out 
who inside their business needs to approve it so that you know who to chase if you have to. Don't forget that a customer who does not pay on time is not a good customer. Um, uh, allow a little bit, bit of leeway for good relationships by all means, but don't hesitate to put them on stop if they don't pay or they pay late too often. Um, try not to be aggressive with them, but do be firm. Sometimes you actually have to train the customer to pay you promptly. Communication is key all around. Um, it's always best to talk to people rather than trying to avoid the bad news. Um, and that's very true of investors. Uh, as a general rule, investors don't like handing over ca more cash. It's not, not terribly surprising. Um, but they also don't like surprises themselves. So combine the two and they really aren't going to be happy with you. Give them warning. Show them a cash flow that works. Show them how, how things will come good and that they're much more likely and how they will come up with their funds. And eventually they're more likely to give you extra, the extra cash you need. Remember, and this surprises a lot of people, um, most investors don't sit on a large amounts of surplus cash, no matter how wealthy they are. Um, they like to keep it invested somewhere and actually have relatively low liquidity in many situations. Um, so it's good to give them as much notice as you can so that they don't have to make difficult phone calls at their end as well. And no surprise, they're probably doing their own cash flow as well. We talked earlier about the benefits of work for hire and publishing deals. Um, these can be great, but funds are generally released on a series of milestones. Um, so make sure you know what is the next milestone and, and make sure you do what you have to do to hit it. Um, you can ask publishers and clients to vary milestones, um, but it's best if you don't have to, then you take away the argument in the first place. If you do need to ask, um, talk to them earlier so that it does not feel to them like it's a panic measure because you've missed some aspect of the current milestone, even though you might have done loads of work for the next one. Most clients and publishers want you to succeed because they've invested in you. Inside their own businesses, the individuals you are dealing with are your champion and need to show you are doing well and that they are in control. So you can help them by keeping them well informed and making requests early. One real danger with publishers and uh, work for hire clients is the temptation to extend milestones. Um, to them, this seems like a really good solution. It's an easy way to get what they want from the milestone, um, and that actually often includes feature creep. To you, this can be quite disastrous. Uh, the question is, did you uh, price this extra time into your, bit, into your bid? If not, uh, you might be doing an extra work for a week or even a month um, work for no extra pay. So your, your development costs are going to come out of your cash reserves. Hitting milestone is, is an important to you and your cash flow as it is to them. Part of the answer to this, which will invariably happen at some point, so you try to avoid it, but it will happen, is to include this in your original pricing. Um, you might make this might be concerned that this makes you too expensive, but in the long run, it's generally better not to get the contract than to get a loss-making contract. Um, and it's fine to get your real profits from the success of the game. In most cases, that's, a, I think, a very fair deal. Um, but you do need to have enough cash available to complete the project, even when something goes wrong. So include a healthy contingency. Are you looking for a publisher for your game? Well, we have something special just for you. It's the most comprehensive listing of PC, console, and mobile publishers in the industry. Over 700 companies sorted by platform with links to their websites. You can get the list at www.powellgroupconsulting.com slash publisher dash list. And you can get it for free. Check it out.
If it's your own game you're working on, uh, one of the best ways to improve your cash flow is to publish your project as soon as you can and see what happens. Uh, I believe there's probably three possible outcomes to this. The first is it's better than you thought, and now you have cash flow law coming in. That's I mean, obviously that's great. Well done. Um, the second is it takes uh, it has some take up, but it's not great. Um, that's still good news in my opinion because now you know what the customers like and don't like. Now you can work your work will be better focused, and you um, you have info about the game to share with potential funders. So that's a, a win situation, even though at first sight it might look as though it's it's not. The third one is that the game actually sinks without a trace. And actually, even that's still good news because you know not to waste more money on it and you can get started on your next game. Um, as a side point, if you've never looked at it, I recommend The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Um, I'm sure most of you will have come across that. Essentially, Lean Startup is all about conserving cash. It's about not using it where you don't need to. One thing to mention is you should always make sure your cash flow includes budgets for QA, post-launch work and marketing. Um, too often um, cash flows are looking at getting to the first release and these sorts of costs are ignored. Um, you may think that some of all these costs will come from your publishing deal that you're going to get on release um, or when the game is ready to go. And they might. Um, but getting these costs to run right from completion of that release build is extremely hard. Um, publishers do like investing in games uh, that are all but complete. Um, and the, but these deals, sorry, these deals do tend to take time to get going. So make sure you've got the funds or paid work to cover the gap until you can reasonably see revenue share payments coming in. Uh, obviously, we mentioned before taxes, and you've got to make sure that you keep back sufficient fund to pay them. As we saw earlier here in the UK, it's generally a quarterly sales tax to pay, um, although it actually can be a repayment if your costs are higher than your revenues. Um, there are also monthly employment taxes and semi-annual annual corporation taxes. Um, make sure you know how much these are likely to be and also understand in your territory um, when they're likely to be paid. A, a technical point that's often forgotten or perhaps not even understood is that in the long run, cash always equals profits. Um, it may be in the very long term, but the relationship always exists. So anything that, uh, that you do to improve profits or, or cause losses is going to do the same to your cash flow at some stage in the future and vice versa. Controlling cash flow is really about handling the timing differences as you go along. But if you don't ultimately make a profit, you will at some point run out of cash, no matter how big a pile you started with in the first place. Finally, let's just talk for a moment about bad debt. Um, let's take an example here. If someone owes you $1,000, chances are you did something for, uh, for them to create that debt. Perhaps you wrote some code for them. Um, there was a staff cost to that debt, say $800. If that person can't or won't pay you, um, you not only have lost your profit, the $200 profit there, but you spent the money on these costs. So to make that back again, you would need actually to do $4,000 worth of cost uh, of work at a cost of, say, $3,200 just to put you in, back in the same position as if you'd never done any of the work in the first place. So collecting bad debt is really, really important. And the best way to get paid is to not let that debt get old in the first place. Don't allow it to become a bad debt. Uh, we talk about having good relationships with the customer and that remains true, but keep your debts fresh and chase them early. Uh, be polite, but be firm and don't be frightened to put that customer on stop until they're up to date. They'll respect you more in the long run. Okay, so that's that's some tips on how to improve your cash flow. Let's look about, oh, big pardon, gone the wrong way. Um, let's look about how you might want to get some funding if you decide that you need to. 
Um, we talked about types of funding before. Uh, if your cash flow shows a shortfall and you can't find a way to fix within your existing resources, resources, you might need to get an injection of cash on relatively short notice, which is a shame because it's a fact of life that it always takes longer to do than you expect. Um, although there are several things you can do to make it easier and more likely to happen. First, investors will really be investing in you and your team. Um, they are much more likely to want to provide funding if they've taken the time to get you to get to know you, so if you take the time to get to know them uh, well before you're looking for funds. Um, the key to this is, of course, networking. Um, that may not be your comfort zone. I know it's not for a lot of people, um, but you do need to do it. So just get out there and, and get going. You should also make sure that your business is funding friendly. And what do I mean by that? Um, investors are looking for the best returns they can get with the lowest risk of, of losing their money. Um, if your game is unpublished, they've got really limited ways that they can assess it as um, excessive it'll be successful so they end up investing as i said before in you and your team and to do that they want a comfortable and warm feeling that you know what you're doing um, that means your game pitch needs to be strong of course but there's more um, they're looking to see that you're doing as everything you're doing is well and considered and well managed um, so the sort of questions that they'll be asking of themselves when they're looking at you is do you have a reputation for delivering on budget on time and creating successful games um, have you done some market research or is this just your opinion? Have you tested the game ideas on consumers, perhaps some artwork or something of that nature and learned from the responses? So not just tested, but actually listened and fed that back into your game. Uh, do you have realistic sales expectations or are you expecting to take over 90% of the market? Um, and then you get more boring, but just as important. You get things like, have you got contracts, etc., and are they properly filed and sorted so you can lay your hands on them at a moment's notice? Have you got your business plan? Um, we talked about that earlier, and hopefully if you haven't before, you're going to go off and do one now. But importantly, have you met it so far? Have you lived up to it? Because if you haven't, why should they believe what you're going to do going forward? And then how do you control cash? Well, the good news is hopefully after this talk, if you weren't before, um, you've got a cash flow forecast going. So that's one of those things that they're going to be ticking a box for to show that you're in control. And then finally, one of the things they're really going to be interested in um, is how do they get their money back? When and how much of a return do they get? Um, at the end of the day, that's what they're really concerned about. So if they like what you have and it all makes sense, then they might want to discuss terms. Um, unfortunately, in most cases, those terms won't be as favorable as you're expecting. They, they absolutely never are. Um, the problem is that they, you come from a point where you are certain of your studio's future success and they come from sector of caution and doubt. Um, there's ways to close those doubt, uh, close that gap, but uh, part of it is is having a realistic understanding of what the, the valuation should be. Um, if pride gets in the way and you don't accept what the realistic numbers show, then the gap will remain too wide and you won't get funding. Again, that goes back to the business plan and the cash flow and make sure that you have a good understanding of what things, um, of why the business is worth what you think it is. Okay. So let's talk about what happens when things go wrong. So, um, We've spoken about how you get the cash flow and how you raise funds if you need them and to make your cash flow work as well as they can. But it's a fact of life that the vast majority of creative projects take longer and cost more than was planned. In fact, it's just about everything in life seems to do that as far as I can see. Um, eventually, you may see a hole in your cash flow that your own best efforts within your existing resources just can't fix in the time available. So what do you do? Well, the, the good news is that uh, because you've been doing a cash flow now, uh, you've been keeping it up to date and can spot the problem early because the more time you have to fix it, the better. 
Um, but if that hole is still there, then almost certainly it's time to, to call in some help. Um, that might be from someone you know outside your business, uh, maybe in the games industry or possibly just somebody else, uh, but who can see ways to do things that you might not and help you find a way through. Um, eventually, though, you're going to need some help from a suitably qualified individual. In the UK, that would be a licensed insolvency practitioner. Um, if you don't know, know anyone to speak to, the chances are your counter lawyer will know, know someone appropriate and may even be the right person themselves. So uh, make sure you ask your advisors. The priority here is to ask for help um, before it's too late. Um, most good insolvency practitioners do want to help a business turn around. But in most cases, 90% uh, plus, the company comes to them too late, perhaps a week away from not making payroll. And there simply is not enough time to do anything. Even then, the insolvency practitioner can make sure that the business is closed as orderly as possible and the directors of the business do all the things required by law so as not to get into trouble. Whether you do this before or after you talk to the uh, to, to, to professional advisors, you will, of course, need to create a plan um, and, and, and to, to move things forward. The insult an insolvent practitioner will get you to document your logic so if the plan doesn't work, you can at least show that you had a sensible reason for doing what you were doing, and that protects yourself going forward. Uh, before or after you call for the help, many things you might look to do would include things like um, uh, communicate with suppliers and investors. Um, that's a really difficult thing to do, not just because it's a hard conversation, but in all cases, there is a risk that they won't support you going forward. Um, and indeed, that can make the cash crisis worse. So timing is important. And this is a risk, but you have to cross the bridge at some point. And experience shows that the more notice you give, the better and more supportive their response is likely to be. Um, it's important you're clear where the risk lies, and particularly with staff. It's simply not right to ask them to continue to work for you if you're not sure you can pay them. Indeed, they may be entitled to some redundancy or notice um, if you have to let them go. It can be a hard thing to do, especially as those staff are likely to have become friends. But in the end, they'll appreciate it more than being left unpaid at the end of a month's work with no cash to pay the rent. Um, one of the things that people don't do um, often enough, and I, th and I think they should, is consider all the alternatives available to keep going. Um, one of your biggest costs in an indie dev studio is likely to be staff costs. So if you can offset these for a period, this can help you get through a gap. Um, consider, for example, the possibility of a work for hire project if you can find one, or perhaps even in consultation with the relevant staff, seeing if another studio you know um, actually is short of resource and you can perhaps agree an outsourcing um, package for a period of time until you're able to get through the gap. And think about this one. You could go to the dark side and take a non-game project that uh, could pay well enough to turn you around. Um, it's particularly true for mobile studios where businesses often have a need for apps. Uh, once you have advice and you've considered all the options, then perhaps if you still can't fix the hole, it's time, I'm afraid, then to call time. Um, and that is probably one of the hard decisions you'll ever have to take. But sometimes you just have to do it. Bear in mind two things. We've already said that over time, cash flow equals profits. So if you don't have cash flow, that possibly means that you aren't profitable. Um, that's not always true um, in the short to medium term, but it's often an indicator. If it's not profitable, it's not sustainable. Um, if no one, and secondly, if no one will invest or supply funding in one form or another, then that means uh, they don't believe in your business plan. Um, it's easy to think they just don't understand, but that's uh, uh, and that's perhaps that's true. Um, but if a range of funders have looked and declined, you need to be very confident to go against that collective view from a group of experienced people. Of course, don't get me wrong; many an entrepreneur has done exactly that and come out on top. Just make sure you do it with your eyes open. 
So then we'll let's look at uh, what to do when things go well. Um, of course, we, we need to talk about the upside as well. We want to talk about the upside. Um, your games hit the market and everyone loves it. Um, downloads are going well and perhaps sales are, are on the up as well, um, which is really great news. But what do you do? Well, oddly, you start in the same places when things go wrong. You check your cash flow and your business plan are up to date and you get some advice. Um, you could try and go it alone, uh, but you want to maximize your success. So if you do already have experience around you, that's great. Um, but if you don't, it's time to get someone who's been involved and done it before. Um, it's, in my mind, perhaps a more unforgivable mistake to squander an opportunity because you sat on it uh, than if your idea just didn't succeed. Um, one thing I should mention here is you need to be aware of the concept of overtrading. Um, this is where success means that you run out of cash to fund your working capital because of exponential growth. Um, the good news is that for most of us with digital products, uh, this should not normally be an issue because you don't really have to invest that much in, in buying your product. What is more likely is that you need more funds to invest in marketing. Um, you may have made sales, but the cash may not have reached you yet or not enough to really ramp up marketing. Um, the good news is that funding now is going to be a lot easier than before. Um, that there are people who will fund, as we said, against future um, sales income. If you've already made sales in the app store, for example, and you just haven't received the, the cash flow through. Um, you also, I think at this stage, really should be looking at a publisher deal, uh, not least because uh, they have the skills. They've done it before. They've, they, they've taken games and they've expanded them through market and can really move it forward very quickly if you're working with the right publisher. If you haven't got the skills in marketing, then just having the funding won't be enough for you. Uh, something that I always do wonder about with publishing deals that never seems to get asked, but I, I do ask it myself when I'm talking to a publisher, is what their commitment will be. If you've got a successful game, a game that's showing well in the stores and you want to know, uh, it's fair enough to ask them how much they're going to put into marketing. And it's also a fair question to ask as to if they decide to drop the game, which does happen because games start because sales start to fall back, um, then can you recover control of the game and uh, and the marketing so that you can move it on in your own mind? Um, let's assume the game continues to perform and you're awash with cash. So um, time to go and celebrate, have a beer or two, um, but don't get carried away. Uh, most games have a limited life cycle, so you need to be ready for the cash flow to dry up really quite suddenly. And I'd ask you to consider two things at this stage. The first is to put as much away for a rainy day as you can, um, at least enough to build your next game and or even two if you can, if you've been that successful. Um, the second is consider the magic of being self-sufficient. A sustainable self-funded business is the, one of the happiest businesses to own. And what that means is that your long-term income exceeds your costs and you have enough reserve to carry you through any dips. And um, if you have that, it's, it's, to be honest, it's almost as good as a trust fund. Um, so do what you can to, to secure a steady income over the longer term. Great. So that brings me on to conclusions. I um, hope that's been helpful. Um, just leave you with, with five key points, really, um, to, to, to bear in mind before we go to questions. Um, the first one is to make sure you have enough funding and that that funding is matched to your business needs. Um, the second is to do a cash flow forecast, a weekly one, and to keep it up to date. Um, third, hit your targets. Um, now, it sounds a bit, of course, you want to hit your targets, but I'm, I'm just talking about being very focused on what those targets are and making sure that you, you know where they are and that you can deliver them. Um, uh, if you haven't picked this one up, then next is communicate at all stages. Um, and finally, act early. And those are probably the, the best steps towards uh, managing your cash in an indie dev studio. So, uh, Jay or, or Dan, if you're there, I don't know if we have any questions. 
I'm here. Yes, we do. We've got some on the Discord that are already coming through. So first off, uh, Stephen, fantastic. That is a lot of stuff that even like the basics that people need to know because nobody teaches them this stuff. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's why Indie Game Business is here. Um, all right. So the first one from Discord, and we've got about 10, 15 minutes. So if you've got questions, pop them in chat, uh, and I'll try to keep a good look on Discord as well. Uh, the first one, are there any resources out there to learn how to do business plans? And I will absolutely let you take this one because I have never created one in my entire career. <laughs> um, yes, there, there are resources out there. I mean, um, the, if, if, if you search online, you'll get an awful lot of different uh, um, examples. You'll be able to find them out there without any great problems at all. Um, you are you can, of course, go off and find um, uh, people who have who've done it before and and have a look at theirs most people will be happy to to share a business plan or two um if they've got them available um business plans do vary depending on what you're trying to to deal with so it isn't a, a one size fits all so business plans can often be huge documents if you're you mentioned doing a fundraising and if you did an information memorandum for that it's a really quite a comprehensive document with financials and everything else um but you'll if you spend a little bit of time on google you'll quickly come across some some basic things that you need to put in there so it's a description of the business it's talking about the marketing it's talking about uh, there will be a cash flow balance sheet and um and PL. and you may need help if you're not an accountant to do those because they do need to to be correct and work together um so that's that's a key aspect of it but it's also about the marketing and the the, the product and how you're going to get it to market um and and what the output is what, what the exit is for people involved in the business um lots of different things there are various courses online you could sign up for and then you know if you're trying to raise funds for example many advisors will will help you come up with the business plan and get it right um, don't be verbose try and keep it nice and tidy um you probably should have a you know a deck version of it as well as as, as a more written document that people can take away and look at and i will say it's a good exercise to do because it makes you really sit down and think hard about what you're doing and how you're going to do it and absolutely what yeah. the opportunity is yeah i mean I'm, i mentioned the lean startup principle and that's actually a good resource for business plans in the sense that he, he very much focuses on not so much a written business plan you might give out but it's a it's a he makes you think about the ways in which and what you're doing your business for what what the objectives are um and that's that's really what's at the key of it the I almost regret now that you now that you've given this that we didn't start where we normally start the podcast and ask how you got into the industry because to go from <laughs> accounting and and finance into th this world. Well, what? I started as I started as a lawyer originally. I qualified as a as a barrister as we have in the UK. Um, it, it just a process of, uh, of of accidents. The series happy accidents. So I started off. Um, uh, doing some consulting work at one stage and um, had several clients and they varied a lot. One of them uh, still work at vacation. He's a guy who has a desalination plant in Cyprus and things like that. Um, but one of my clients was a wonderful company based in Scotland here called Denki. Um, and uh, uh, Denki was a game with the company that originally did interactive TV games for Sky in the UK. And I started working with them to help make sales overseas. And we sold into DirecTV in America and then into Bell. And uh, and after a bit of consulting, Colin Anderson, who runs Denki, asked me to to head up a studio in London, which I decided to do, and uh, been doing it ever since. Well, not not that studio, but been involved in games ever since. So, are there differences? I mean, I frequently tell people, especially ones that aren't in this industry, that our industry isn't like anything else. 
it's, <laughs> you can generally, when you come in from somewhere else, you can take what you've learned and throw yeah. it straight out the window because it's not going to, it's not going to matter. What are some I, of the, I think there's more similarities than there are differences. Really? Oh, absolutely. Everything, almost everything we're doing in games. I mean, the you know the platform's different, and and all those sort of things have ch changed. But and and so the you know the move into digital. But that's not just the games industry, if you like, is for something that's fundamentally different. Um, but uh, but uh, but as I say, that's happened across lots of industries. Um, to me, a business is a business, and most of these most of the businesses in the game industry are dealing with the same sort of challenges that companies are in other sorts. It's just slightly different names, perhaps. All right, so we've got a question here. What is the best choice between investors and publishers? And why should you choose one versus another? But what's the difference? Well, the difference really will, if you're talking about publishing as a publishing deal where they're not investing in your company, they're investing in the game. So that's the, the first fundamental difference is that a publisher is investing in the game, not in your business. Um, so, so you you may have several games. Um, you may not. You may only have the one. But their relationship is just with that game, and that's what they're interested in. And everything else is is on the side for them. Whereas an investor is taking shares in your company; they own a stake of it, um, and you know they might own twenty percent of your business, twenty fifty percent of the business. So they are much closer business partners in that sense. A, a publisher is only relating to the individual game, um, and it's not a corporate ownership of the game succeeds or fails, then the relationship moves on um, accordingly, depending on what happens. So what is the most common mistake you see, especially small developers? Because, I mean, let's, let's be frank, most indie developers aren't going out there and looking for investors day one. No, shouldn't be, yeah. But what is the most common mistake you see small indie devs making? I think probably it's it's not being realistic about what the, what what's going to happen with their business. Um, so I see them talking about when they're negotiating publisher deals, or whether it's investment, or whether they're just talking to people generally. They they don't conceptualize that things will go wrong. Um, so all their planning is done on the basis that everything is going to be right um, first time out, and they don't allow for the fact that um, the people who are successful are going to get it wrong and wrong and wrong, and then get it right. So they need to build that into their thinking. Which goes back into all the articles we see constantly about how many games Rovio did before they went, you know, before they... Exactly right. Yeah. Oh. All right. So, all right, hold on. I lost it. All right. If anybody's got a question, we've got about five more minutes here before we kick it over to our, our next one. On yeah. the runway questions. Yes. How far, I mean... We understand the mathematics behind a runway, yeah. but for the starting indie devs, how far do <laughs> how far do they generally need to plan out to be safe? So, I, I think there's it. it um, if 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 for the sake of argument, you have a business that is broadly sustainable. So let's say it's a work for hire studio that is um, getting business in and they're keeping going then typically I would say three to six months um, funding. So that allows them to have a gap and a problem and then they make a bit of money back and they can get, keep going again. Um, if you're talking about a studio that is uh, got some money from somewhere to build a game and they have no revenue until that game is launched, then it's, it's a one-way flow. Um, money is only going out the door until they get to that stage. And in which case, simply they have to have enough money to get to the point where, um, where, where it's obviously post-release, but it's also post 
revenues building up and they have to have enough cash flow to stay there long enough to do that. Um, so that, again, you talk about mistakes that they make. They People often think about getting to that release point, but they don't allow for how they keep themselves going um, whilst the, the, the game itself builds up its sales platform. So we I, I frequently refer to the work for hire as a means of funding your own game as yeah. the treadmill because <laughs> you people come into it and they say, okay, look, we've got our game that we want to finance, but in order to do that, we need to have work and we need to have cash flow yeah. coming in. So we're going to do work for hire. And then inevitably you don't end up saving any money and putting it aside, doing your work for hire to do your original game and it becomes this treadmill that you're on, that you're always going yeah. out there and trying to do it. What are some best practices for getting off that treadmill? So, yeah, I mean, the first thing is to recognize that you're on it. Um, so so what's, what happened? What has happened there? And it's happened to me in the past, um, absolutely. So the, the reason you're probably not generating the surplus that you need to allow to put another team on building your own game is because probably you're, you're actually having gaps between projects for example um you know where one project finishes but the next one doesn't start for two weeks um so so those sort of scenarios um and and really it goes back to the fact that you haven't priced it right um now you may have had to price it at that level to get the work but the truth is that if you're if you're pricing it to the level where you are just covering your costs uh, then you're not going to create that surplus. So we, we, I've mentioned that somewhere in my talk about the idea of looking at and reviewing your pricing. Um, you, if you want to get to that scenario, I mean, you are, whilst doing that work fire on the treadmill, you're earning a living in the games industry and keeping happy in that sense. So it's, it's got that positive. Um, but you're not going to break through and make your own game unless you can create that headroom somewhere. Um, I've seen it done before where um, you might run two teams that are work fire and the third one has to be doing something of your own sort. Um, or if you do have a game, have gaps between projects, then you you expect to have those, you know, a week or two downtime when you can work on your own thing. But you have to be ready to get going on it. You can't just come in, move, move around the studio for a few days and then think maybe we should pick that old game up again. You have It has to be a, a positive action plan to get on and do that. Um, so, again, we have to think ahead, right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's all about thinking ahead. So those are the, the, the cash flow forecasting is all critical to saying we can afford to do this because we've got that headroom to, to go ahead and do it. Awesome. Stephen, thank yeah. you. Um, and, and like all of our sessions, as long as you have one of the free passes from the website, you just go to indiegame.business to get one of those. We're going to send you all the slide decks from all the speakers that we have this week. And then as well, you can absolutely reach out to Stephen directly either at Stephen P. Swan on Twitter or Stephen at leapfrog.digital uh, as an email. And uh, thank you. Are, are you on the Ooh. Discord, Stephen? I am, yes. And, and if anybody does want a copy of the demo um, cash flow, then just email me and I'm happy to share that. Awesome. All right. And so he's yeah. around as well. If you want to go to post sessions chat, we are going to step away for a second and then kick it over to Dan in Studio B. I like that idea. We have studios A and B. We're going to kick it to Studio <laughs> B for our next session, which is a Christian with how to a, a compact masterclass on stories characters and worlds stick around we will be right back thanks, thanks everybody so bye